0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces, and I'm joined today over Zoom by three of my colleagues who are involved in the Intrepid project. I've got uh, Thomas Ajeneau, I've got Leah West, and I've got Michael Nesbitt. And today we are going to talk about a decision that came out recently from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice involving a lawsuit against Iran for the downing of Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752. Michael and Leah have written a blog entry on Intrepid's website, critiquing the decision and raising questions about it. And our topic today is really to explain that critique. And to get there, we need to start with some background or backdrop. And so we've invited Thomas to talk a little bit about the downing of Flight 752. uh, And then we'll turn our attention to the statute under which this decision was made. So Tom, welcome back to Intrepid Podcast.
1: Thank you. Nice to be back.
0: And why don't we start by you providing an overview of the events in January 2020 involving the tragic downing of this flight, this Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752, which precipitated then obviously a significant loss of life, a, a diplomatic dispute, and now this recent lawsuit.
1: So if we go back to the fall of 2019, tensions between the U.S. and Iran had been rising. If you go back uh, to that context, President Trump maximum pressure on Iran. Tension in Iraq was rising between the two countries, etc. And then there's an incident whereby an American contractor is killed on an American base in Iraq as a result of missiles uh, launched by Iran-backed Shia militias. There's a bit of a tit-for-tat that goes on its own that's not unique. It had happened before, it happened after. But long story short, the U.S. really uh, ramps up the retaliation against uh, Iran and assassinates by a drone strike in Iraq, General Qassem Soleimani, who is the commander of the Quds Force, which is the special forces or the external operations unit of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is more or less the Praetorian Guard of the regime in Iran. And then Iran retaliates not long after that by lobbying dozens of missiles on American bases in Iraq. Uh, Canadian troops in Iraq have to take shelter at that time. And then we are in, in early January 2020 at a very tense moment, one of the Most difficult moments in the history of difficult moments between Iran and the U.S. since 1979. We're getting very close to a serious escalation, and there's uh, concern on both sides as to what will happen next. And then, for reasons that we can get into later on, somewhat mysteriously, Iran chooses not to close its airspace to civilian aircraft on that evening in, in early January and a a flight, Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752, uh, with a number of either Canadians or people linked to Canada, for example, students on their way to Canada, uh, take off uh, from Tehran International Airport and is shot down. Initially, it's not clear what happened, but it turns out that even though we still don't know a lot of what happened, uh, it's the IRGC's air defenses that sent two missiles on that flight, shooting it down and uh, killing everybody on board. There's still a lot of uncertainty around exactly what happened, exactly what was the intent, exactly who gave the order, et cetera. But by and large, this is what brings us here.
0: And what's the response from the international community and especially Canada in the
1: aftermath of this downing? Well, pretty quickly, Canada announces within a couple of days after the plane got shot down that it considered that it was shot down by Iran, that it was not, for example, in some kind of an accident. Initially, Iran denies that was the case, but fairly quickly when the, the evidence is just too high, even the Iranian government, the Iranian regime acknowledges that it shot it down. That being said, Iran has said from the beginning, and that remains its line today, that it was just an accident. So so since then, Canada has been on a somewhat lonely campaign sometimes to try to get a, an agreement with Iran for a compensation for the families of the victims, to for some kind of transparency and accountability for Iran, but so far with fairly little success.
0: Okay, so the second prong of this discussion today really revolves around efforts to extract compensation from Iran through Canada's civil system through a lawsuit. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about how that's possible. We have the downing of an aircraft in Iran. We have victims who are tied to Canada. We have family members in Canada. And some of those family members bring a lawsuit in Canada against Iran. How is that possible? Leah, can you help us understand
2: So it's all made possible by a fun little act called the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act that was enacted in 2012, which creates unusually a federal civil cause of action. And the act, according to the preamble, is to deter terrorism by establishing a cause of action that allows victims of terrorism to sue perpetrators of terrorism and their supporters. So essentially what it it does is If a state has been listed as a state that supports or engages in terrorism under the uh, State Immunity Act, which is how Canada codifies what's known as state immunity, and Craig, I'll get you to jump in on that in a second, if a state's been listed, so far there's been two states listed, we have Iran and Syria. Then under the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act, if a person has suffered a loss or damage in or outside of Canada by that state committing a terrorism offense, then they can sue for damages under the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act. And obviously I'm uh, cutting to the chase here. But that's essentially how it works. Together with the amendments to the State Immunity Act, it creates a hole in the state immunity protections for a state if that state engages or supports terrorism. And then where someone suffers loss as a result of that state's either support or engagement in terrorism offenses. And those offenses have to be offenses as defined under the Criminal Code of Canada, then the judge uh, in, the, in the case can find that the victims have a, a cause of action.
0: So who does the listing, Leah? Uh, you said there were two states that were listed, one of which was Iran. Who does the listing?
2: So under the State Immunity Act, it's the governor and council that has a list under that act that identifies states that they've de- deemed qualify as either supporting or engaging in terrorism.
0: So basically that's cabinet. So it's a, it's a decision made by the political executive as to which entity, or in this case, which state uh, is going to be listed. And, and then you mentioned, Leah, that the tie-in, so this is a civil cause of action for conduct that meets the definition of a terrorism offense in the criminal code, which is, it seems like an unusual pairing in the sense that we usually distinguish between criminal offenses, which have their own sort of specialized list of, of qualities that have to be met before someone can be convicted. And we've turned that into the basis for civil remedy. And I suppose that's done for a couple of reasons. Both it it overcomes what I would assume would be the difficulty in defining terrorism if you were to try to define it separately in this Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act. But I suppose also it creates a more viable argument that this statute is constitutional in the sense that this is an outgrowth, arguably of the federal powers over criminal law and not an intrusion into what are typically the provincial powers over civil rights and property that would include uh, civil rights of action at the uh, provincial level. It's a constitutional theory coupled with, I suppose, some expediency in terms of definition. Yeah, and
2: I would say that there are those that David Quiet and others wrote a paper questioning whether or not that constitutional theory holds up.
0: Right, not yet been tested. Now, this was introduced. Correct me if I'm wrong, Toma, but There's a backstory to why the then Harper government asked Parliament to promulgate this bill. I wonder if you can provide us with some context on that.
1: The backstory is quite clear. The JVTA was uh, designed as a tool to implement the Harper government's harsh policy towards Iran. When the Harper government came in 2006, it decided to, to take what was already Canadian opposition towards Iran. It's not like we were friends with Iran before that, but to take it in a much uh, tougher and more aggressive direction. So over the years, from 2006 to 12, the government... Uh, developed a number of positions, of postures at the UN, for example, uh, support for the International Atomic Energy Agency for additional inspections of Iran's nuclear program, etc. So there was a fairly large-scale effort to identify new ways to to put pressure on Iran, and the JVTA was a a result of that. So it, it was really born as a means to impose more pressure on Iran.
0: And what have the implications been? for Canadian-Iranian relations to the extent that we have any.
1: So the, the JVTA itself, and this is an important point to make, does not bar per se the having diplomatic relations with a state that is listed as a sponsor of terrorism. But in practice, it makes it impossible. And this is a very deliberate consequence. When the JVTA was drafted, as folks at the DOJ, at Justice and at Foreign Affairs and elsewhere were trying to figure out what the implications would be, uh, that was very clear. That was conscious and it was deliberate. So in practice, just before the JVTA or the listing of Iran, as a state-sponsored terrorism, was to come into function in September 2012, Canada expelled Iranian uh, diplomats from Ottawa and recalled uh, diplomatic personnel from Iran. And since then, there have not been diplomatic relations or at least embassies between the two countries. And when the liberal government came to power in 2015, it had pledged to try to reopen embassies. And so far, it has failed to do that. Putting aside this episode, which obviously makes that in practice impossible, before PS752 came in, there were a number of obstacles that prevented the the liberals from uh, reopening embassies. The JVTA was not the only one. There were other consular cases, for example. But the JVTA really tied the hands of uh, the liberals uh, because the liberals basically had two options. One of them was to try to reopen embassies with Iran while keeping Iran listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. But A, uh, that uh, made it extremely unappealing for Iran, which felt that by accepting those conditions, it would legitimize a process that saw it listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. And in practice, it would have meant that any Iranian government asset, not diplomatic asset, but any Iranian government asset in Canada would have been eligible to be seized by courts. So from Iran's perspective, that was not appealing. The other option would have been for Canada to delist Iran as a state sponsor of terrorism, which... From a procedural perspective, would have been quite simple because, as Leah just said, it's the result of a governor and council action to list or delist. So procedurally, it's very simple. But politically, that was extremely difficult for the government to basically come out and say Iran is not a state sponsor of terrorism anymore. Technically, that would be inaccurate because Iran. Nobody denies that it supports groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, which are listed as as criminal groups. And anyways, politically, that would have been really difficult and costly for the government. And it just, it's a fight that the government didn't want to win. And and that's where, from the conservatives' perspective, the JVTA has to be seen as very successful policy. Because whether you agree with it or not, uh, they've managed to entrench for the long-term a policy outcome that they want, which is no embassies with Iran. And the JVTA doesn't make that impossible, but it makes it very difficult.
2: I just wanted to jump in and just state that there has already been two cases brought under the Justice for Victims of Terrorist Act, both against Iran. But in those cases, it was Canada enforcing judgments from the United States. Mm. Essentially, the foreign court, the United States court under the Foreign Sovereign's Immunity Act found against Iran and then the JVTA allowed Canadian courts to allow it to be enforced against Iran within Canada. So presumably against assets within Canada. But this, in the court of appeal, determined that Iran was unprotected by state immunities, but that's only under domestic law. We also have to consider international law.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned the US example. As best I know, only Canada and the United States have created civil causes of action that strip a state of what's known as state immunity in relation to terrorism and allow a collection uh, against assets that state may have in their respective jurisdictions. And the reason for that is you suggested, Leah, is that the concept of state immunity in international law is enormously robust. And so just to be clear what we mean by state immunity, every state in the international system is equally sovereign. And so it is an intrusion on the sovereignty of one state to have the courts in another state adjudicate that state's behavior. And so state immunity is meant to maintain this horizontal system where there's no entity above the sovereign state and one state is not purporting to, to opine on the legitimacy of the conduct of another state. It's an ancient concept. It goes back hundreds of years. It is codified in parts in treaty law, but it's also what's known as custom international law. and the International Court of Justice has given it substantial reach. And so it applies not just in relation to terrorism, but also extends to things like crimes against humanity and war crimes and the like. And so if you try to direct a civil cause of action against a state for those sorts of activities in your own courts, that is improper as a matter of international law. Now, that seems unjust at one level, but keep in mind, that what's good for the goose is good for the gander in this sort of situation. And to the extent that, say, in Canada, we relax state immunity vis-a-vis Iran, we might reasonably expect that, not least as a countermeasure, Iran might do the same in relation to Canada. And you can see how the tit-for-tat eventually spirals out of control, and every state is potentially subject to the jurisdiction of courts in some other state, and international relations would be deeply impaired. And so that's the reason for state immunity. The other consideration for state immunity is generally states do not like to surrender control over their foreign affairs to courts. And so in keeping with the comments, Tama, you just made about the implications, the diplomatic implications of the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act, effectively courts now weigh in on the conduct of a foreign state in a way that can have larger implications for the ability, in this case of Canada, to conduct foreign relations with that state. And so the executive effectively surrenders to the judiciary control over foreign affairs, which is not something that executives foreign ministries really like very much. And so from an international law perspective, there's a lot of reason to doubt that the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act is consistent with Canada's international obligations. This certainly is currently framed. That, I think, provides us with enough backdrop to talk about this latest decision. Michael, let's turn to you. Do you want to set up this latest decision before we get into the critique that you and Leah have published on the Intrepid website?
3: Sure, I'll I'll offer, before we get into a critique of the decision, maybe I'll offer one uh, note of sympathy for judges in this situation. And, And that is simply that the hook that we're going to talk about for the lawsuit here is a terrorism offense in Canada. So that's part two, one of criminal code for those following along at home. And the judge will have to find a breach of an offense under the criminal code. Now that is going to be inherently really difficult for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is under the JVTA, these are almost all going to be default judgments, which means you're not going to have a uh, defense or defendant in place to argue one side.
2: Iran's not gonna show up, Mike? Come on no, now.
3: Iran is very unlikely to show up, yeah. Syria? No? Okay. Especially because as Tom had decided, they're, as long as this is in place, they're not going to have uh, representation in Canada, if for no other reason than that, right? <clears throat> and so what I think you you have happening here is a court and a judge in a civil judgment is asked to make a finding on a criminal offense. And so that's a civil finding of criminal wrongdoing. Now, that inherently is going to be difficult. It's going to be more difficult in this situation where you have no defense, where you don't have access to an individual. And remember, criminal offense is attached to individuals. And where you won't have access without access to the individual or necessarily complete information as to what happened. Any or much information about what the mens rea and motive are in the case. And in terrorism, perhaps more than most or any other offense in our criminal code, the ultimate decision as to whether an offense has taken place will turn largely on the evaluation of that motive and mens rea. So you have no individual, you have limited information on motive and mens rea, and you have no defense in place. And now the judge is being asked to find whether an individual committed a terrorism offense. And I think what you saw in this judgment is almost an inevitable outcome, which is that no individual is identified. An offence is vaguely associated with a group. There's very limited discussion of mens rea, uh, which we can get into, but I think they also get wrong in this case uh, and don't attach to all the relevant offences. There's no discussion of motive whatsoever. And now we have a decision based on that. And so what is going to happen, we'll see this in international law areas I've studied with respect to UN commissions of inquiry. And in your best case scenario, as Leah has probably alluded to, and you as well, perhaps, Craig, with respect to the state immunity, is that this is not going to be enforced anywhere. The worst case scenario is it's not going to be enforced anywhere. And the judgment looks bad on the Canadian judicial system because you have a institution being asked to do something for which it is not ideally suited or or capable at all.
0: So you've mentioned some of the aspects of the decision, Mike, and you don't sound like you're persuaded by it. You, you mentioned that there's the inherent challenge of converting a criminal offense into a civil wrong where you've basically now got to prove the elements of the criminal offense in circumstances where you're going to have perhaps inadequate evidence before you, you're not going to have an adversarial process because the other side's not in front of you. Uh, is it your sense, and I'm going to get Leah in on this as well, that the judge did their best in the circumstances, or, or do you feel that this case cut corners?
3: Yeah, to be blunt, I'll, I'll let Leah jump in here as well. But I think there were a number of corners cut and we can get into what those are. So in, in the first instance is not clearly set out how the hook, that is the criminal offense, is to be evaluated. So in this case, it's weirdly terrorism financing. It's not clearly explained how terrorism financing is connected to other offenses, which together are joined in the judgment to make out the offense. The mens rea is neither properly articulated nor fully evaluated. And then when we get to the defenses, the judge says it's a default judgment, Iran didn't show up, so I don't have to consider the defenses. And I would argue, again, this is part of the problem, perhaps with the JVTA, but it's an inevitable one for the judges. And so the result is they're going to have to If you have a legislated offense that has to be considered, and within that legislative offense, there are legislated defenses, then the judge, in considering the offense without one party present, are going to have to consider the defenses. And in this case, they do an inadequate job with respect to the armed conflict defense, on the one hand, and on the other, they don't discuss at all another possibly valid defense, which is a defense for actions of military forces of a state. Yeah. yeah, I just
2: want to I just want to back up and start by providing a little bit more context in case people haven't read the the blog. Essentially, four family members of victims of the downed aircraft brought a claim under the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act and it sounds like that they were making the claim that terrorist activity was committed through the downing of the aircraft. They presented some evidence via two experts who were regional experts, I'd say, not legal experts, and provided some documentation from the United Nations in support of their claim from the UN Special Rapporteur, who had written a report on the downing. So this was the type of evidence that was put before the court in order to find that a terrorism offense, and it's not any terrorism offense, this is important, under the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act, the number of terrorism offenses that provide a cause of action is not. The same as the number of terrorism offenses in the criminal code. In the criminal code, there's all kinds of terrorism offenses. There are a bunch of ones that basically incorporate international treaties into our criminal code and create offenses, like treaties that say you can't down civilian aircrafts. But then there's also separate offenses that we are most commonly talk about in Canada and the ones that are actually... Prosecuted in Canada, which are those that are delineated specifically in the criminal code, like participation in a terrorist group or facilitating terrorist activity. So it's those enumerated ones, not the treaty-based terrorist activity or terrorist offenses that are captured by the JVTA. So... While it would seem that the most obvious terrorism offense here is the downing of a civilian aircraft, which is a terrorism offense under the criminal code, would be your way forward, but the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act doesn't actually allow for that to be the terrorism offense that we're talking about. So you have to find one of the other offenses available. And here, one would think that the most obvious one would be the commission of an indictable offense on behalf of a terrorist group right? So I shot down this plane on behalf of a terrorist group for my terrorist motive, the terrorist group being the kud's force, right? The IRGC is not a listed entity in Canada, but as Craig and I have talked about before, you can be a self-nominating terrorist group, right? You can be a group that meets the definition of terrorist group. And so in order to do all that, the court would have needed to do a whole lot of work. And instead, it just skips all the work and just decides that Iran finances terrorism and the terrorism led to the downing of the aircraft. And then from there proceeds to say, okay, cause of action and under terrorist activity, there is kind of negations. So it's not terrorist activity. And so something can't be a terrorism offense. If your activity is done in the course of a armed conflict and done consistent with the laws of armed conflict. Or it's conducted by a military in the course of its official duties, and those duties and its actions are governed by international law, otherwise, not compliant with uh, international law, otherwise, governed by, right? So basically, there are other forms of law that are regulating this, not criminal law. And so the court finds instead that Iran's engaged in terrorism financing, there was no armed conflict doesn't consider the military's kind of negation and says, bada bing, bada boom, you're good to go. And so all kinds of issues.
0: So to summarize that, it sounds like we have a, a problem here of a square peg in a round hole in terms of trying to fit the conduct at issue in the downing of 752 into the parameters, at least of the offenses that the court looked at as constituting the actionable civil cause of action. And then an analysis that Seems to skip over some of the necessary steps that would in any criminal context need to be considered. On top of that, we've got the state immunity question. And so Canada may actually be in non-compliance with its international obligations by virtue of this judgment. I suppose the follow-on question from that is: so what? So we have here Iran who even setting aside what was actually intended at the time, the use of this missile. It did down an aircraft, killed a large number of people. Their family members obviously have suffered considerable emotional and financial hardship in consequence. Surely there should be a system that allows them to extract a remedy from Iran. So these are all nice legal niceties, but why should I care? At the end of the day, we have a judgment that obliges Iran, or in this case, the, whatever assets Iran continues to have in Canada, to be drawn down to compensate this family, I assume that is the most plausible outcome. So why should I be worried about this critique that, that you guys have mounted? Leah?
2: So there's two, and I think very different ones. My personal critique is the critique of the rule of law. right? We have the rule of law in Canada. We set out definitions legislation, we say these are the requirements, these are the defenses for behavior, right? There is an expectation that those standards will be met in our courts, regardless of what the cause of action or who the defendant is, right? That's what separates states who ascribe to the rule of law and those who don't. And we can't deviate from our values and the rule of law when those who would benefit from it are countries like Iran. The second thing I'll say is that there are other efforts, and Toma may be able to speak to this, ongoing in order to get Iran to pay compensation to the victims. Having Iran be told by an Ontario court that it intentionally shot down this aircraft and that was a terrorist act, and therefore we're going to extract money from you, and in a proceeding that it did not participate in a, under a legislation that it does not acknowledge as lawful, could potentially scuttle any other legitimate efforts to see Iran pay compensation. And I think that would be deeply sad for the, the, the rest of the family members who are seeking to have Iran acknowledge the, the fact that it cost the lives of 167 people.
0: Thomas, do you want to pick up on that?
1: Uh, That's a really good point. And and as a non-lawyer, when I I saw this uh, ruling come out, that was obviously one of my first reactions and one of my first questions. So I don't know what the impact of this ruling will be on Canada's efforts to get compensation from the Iranian government for the families of the victims. And here, when we say compensation, we mean the financial aspect of compensation packages for the victims' families, but also the broader effort that Canada has launched a while ago to obtain, in addition to compensation, transparency and accountability and a full accounting Uh, By Iran of what happened. Will this ruling help? No, that part, I think, is very clear. I do not see how this gives Canada, for example, additional leverage to obtain either uh, greater compensation or to obtain it faster or to obtain more transparency on the Iranian side. So I don't think it helps. Will it hinder Canadian efforts? You know what, maybe a bit, time will tell, but I doubt that it will uh, be a big problem. And the reason for that is is that things are already not going very well in the sense that the Iranian government is not responding to Canadian efforts to be transparent. Uh, That's not a direct criticism of this current Canadian government. I think it's just not Iran's nature to be transparent and and accountable for something like this. Whatever Canada does, I think, will not change Iran's uh, lack of responsiveness at this level. Iran has agreed in principle to pay compensation to victims' families, but Iran will want to do it on its own terms. It will not want to be perceived as... Uh, bending to any kind of international uh, pressure to do this. So things weren't going very well. Uh, this ruling will not help, but will it make things worse? Probably not, or at least not a lot. Um, I'd say for now, but obviously we're still very, we might need a bit more time before we can reach a clearer judgment.
0: Michael, last word to you.
3: Sure. So Thomas has mentioned the practical implications and Lee, I think, really astutely has mentioned the rule of law implications and some of those credibility implications that are knock-on effects of misusing a law or institution for something for which it's not ideally suited in order to create an outcome that one wants. And I would say there are also lower level concerns with this. And one of them is if you just look at the law itself and follow the logic of what is being said in the judgment, this is saying that it is a offensive terrorist financing, 83.02 in the criminal code in this case, to essentially provide a missile to your own group to commit a terrorist activity. So if you're following, that then becomes an offense to provide yourself in a group with a gun to shoot someone in a terrorism case. And that becomes a hook for terrorism financing. So that's something we've never seen in terrorism cases in Canada. And we have plenty of examples of people using guns um, to commit offenses. It is not at all what one would think of as terrorist financing. And I think it strains credibility to conceive of terrorist financing in 83.02 in that way. And so not only do you have these broad rule of law credibility problems, uh, but it could have knock-on effects in terms of The credibility of the analysis uh, and the scope of some of the individual offenses that are considered herein.
0: Thanks very much to the three of you for coming together to walk us through what is both a complex dispute, the tragic events involving the downing of Flight 752 and the diplomatic aftermath, and now has become a complex legal decision from the Ontario Superior Court, which, which raises all sorts of knock on implications more generally for Canada's diplomatic relations and the specifics of the aftermath of Flight 752. And as Michael, you've just suggested, potentially implications for the way we conceive of terrorism law in Canada. So thanks very much to the three of you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.